Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo Podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in His plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. Is that it? It's over? Isn't Wednesday night the best night of the week? I mean, really? It is. But you know what the worst moment of the week is? Is that one for me. I'm standing here, and I'm and and like you probably wonder what's going through my head, and it's something like ah ah, you know, something something like that uh, is what it's. I think it was it was um, Jerry Seinfeld. He said that they did a poll. I guess the poll was real. They said what are the like what what are the two greatest fears that all humans have, and uh, number two was death, and number one was public speaking. And he said that he said that that means that if you do a funeral, uh, you would rather be in the casket than the one giving the eulogy. Anyways, uh, that that's what that moment's like. But then it passes and it's over, and now here we are. We get in the word, and it's great. So, um, if you have your Bible, actually no. Before we open our Bibles, um, you guys heard in the announcements a couple things. One is that Monday night around the Civic Center prayer for the Easter service. Bring your trumpets. No, don't bring your trumpets. <laughs> bring kazoos or something, no, but but just catch that uh, opportunity to just pray for um, what God's going to do this year during this week, um, and also that there's no Wednesday service next week, so if you show up next Wednesday night, uh, no one will be here, and you will be bummed, so you have been told, you've been informed, what'd you say? If you, if you show up? Oh, that's good. All right, so tonight we are in the book of Acts, chapter 16, so if you have your Bible, you can open there at this time, if you want a Bible to follow along with us, just get the attention of one of the ushers as they follow uh, down the aisles, and you can grab um, one of them. And let's just pray again and ask God to turn our attention completely towards his voice, his word, his kingdom. Lord, we again uh, turn to you, Father, in this moment. And uh, we just want to plead the blood of Jesus over every one of our hearts, our homes, our families. Uh, our past, present, and future, and we want to be renewed in your presence tonight. We ask, Lord, that you would lift away uh, anything that would distract us tonight, that you'd lift away any, any fatigue, any fog, anything, Lord, that would cause us to not hear from you, and that you would give us this time of perfect attention to hear your voice tonight. I know, Lord, that the, the, the principles and things that are here before us in your word are timeless. They're deeper than we can comprehend or understand, and, uh, and they change our lives in ways that we can't comprehend. So, Lord, would you tonight have access to the deepest part of our heart, and would you work uh, something in there that translates and resonates throughout eternity. So uh, give us your voice as we give you our ear, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So one of the nights this past week, uh, or evenings, Rocky and I, who worked together, we finished up early, and um, I asked him if he wanted to go to the gym, and he said, no, he said, I'm going to go for a hike, a sunset hike, up in the Taconic Mountains, which means that he's going to hike to the top of a mountain, watch the sunset, and then he's going to hike out after dark. And he said to me, he said, Dad, do you want to come? And I said, I'm extremely honored that you would want to spend even more time with me. I said, but no, I don't want to come. I love the outdoors and I love hiking, but I don't love the outdoors and hiking after dark. I hate it. And he knows that um, because I hate feeling lost. I hate feeling like I don't know where I am. And I told him that. I said, I hate that feeling, whatever. And he said, he said, all you have to do is follow me. <laughs> because somehow he doesn't get lost. And even when you lose the trail with Rocky after dark, I don't know what it is, but he can just like kind of look up at the moon and he goes, oh, and he knows where to go. And next thing he's back on the trail. And I said, yeah, I understand. I could do that. I said, but do you want me Every 15 seconds, saying, Rocky, Rocky, are we on the path? Rocky, are we on the path? I don't remember this. I don't remember this. Is, are we on the path? And he said, no, you're right, Dad. I'll go by myself, you know. <laughs> so sure enough, um, he, he went, and I did not go, okay? Um, now, the same feeling that I feel uh, following Rocky in the dark at night on a path in the woods, um, I think was kind of a similar feeling of what it was like for the, the disciples in the early days when Jesus first called them and, and he said to follow me. 
And I imagine just uh, what that must have been like. I mean, we read it and we read over it as though it was just like, okay, well, it just happened. But I mean, for someone who uh, was living their life and they had a plan and a path and a past, and then all of a sudden Jesus just shows up and he says, now follow me. And then most of them just did. They left everything right as it was. In that moment, there was an opportunity and they went. And you just think like what that must have been like. You know, there was a sense of, uh, of derailment. You know, I was on a track and now I'm on a different track and it's completely different than what I was doing before. And there's a sense of abandonment because you're giving up everything that was before, including the plans for the future and, and, and kind of uh, in inspiration, you're believing that what will be is better than what would have been. And so there was something about Jesus that inspired them to want to do that. There was also a level of trust, which is uh, unimaginable, being that there had been no equity. There was never a, a chance for Jesus to win their trust, but there was something in that moment that they saw in him or sensed in him that caused them to be able to trust him, that they would be able to follow him. Uh, but then once they did, then all of that turned into a level of confusion and ultimately a level of frustration. And here's why. Because all of the men, or I should say most of the men, because I don't know them and I wasn't there, but most of the men were probably theologically competent. You were not called in that culture in those days to follow a rabbi unless you had some kind of, uh, of a background of following God in some regard. You know, we know that some of the disciples were already following John the Baptist, and then they just transitioned over and they were following Jesus. So these were not uh, stupid, uneducated men. They were theologically competent, at least in the Old Testament scriptures. However, everything that Jesus did was totally illogical. It, it didn't make sense. Everything that Jesus did while they were with them violated common sense. I mean, one of the first things that Jesus did is he goes to a wedding and everyone at the wedding was half drunk. We know that because they ran out of wine. You didn't throw a wedding and not have enough wine, which means that everybody drank more than what they thought. And then they came to Jesus, they come to God and they say, God, we need more wine. And you would think the common sense, the logical thing would be like, Jesus would be like, you know what, let me just make some grape juice or let me make some uh, coffee and maybe we could just bring the tenure of, of the celebration down just a little bit. But he's like, all right, he says, bring me 120 gallons of water. That's how much was in those uh, um, six water pots that held two or three firkins apiece. And he says, okay, he says, now draw some out. And Jesus provided 120 gallons of wine to people that already didn't know when to say when. I mean, it was completely illogical. You'd never think that God would do that. And then in the same chapter, in succession to that, they go down to Jerusalem and they go into a church service. And, and at the front of the church service, there are people there that are facilitating the offering. They're, they're exchanging so that you can bring the currency that you have and exchange it into the currency that was most convenient for the people that would be dealing with it. And Jesus goes to it and he sees it and something flips inside of him and he starts throwing the tables. He starts, he grabs a whip and he starts whipping the table and he throws the cages with the, I mean, it's just unbelievable thing. And they're going like, oh my goodness, this, this rabbi that we're following, it didn't make sense. Jesus violated the status quo in his associations and the people that he would accompany or hang out with. Jesus violated the religious authority. In fact, the only people that we see Jesus had a problem with throughout his ministry were the religious authorities, the people that seemed to or claimed to know what was going on. And we know that Jesus violated what were accepted as the accepted traditions. Jesus was very unpredictable. Now, that was fine for himself. We know that he was God. We know that he was uh, inspired, that he was led, and he, he could do that. That was good if it was just him. But it wasn't just him. He brought his followers into that unpredictability. Now, there was not one occasion ever in the three and a half years that Jesus had those disciples following him that they would have done what he did. 
They were always wrong in their perception of what was best. If they said in a situation, let's stay here, Jesus would always say, no, it's time to go. That happened when there was a crowd beginning to assemble in the Galilee region. And they said, Lord, this is it. Everybody's looking for you. They're waiting. And he said, no, it's time for us to go. No, this is, this is why we're doing this. We want a crowd of people. And Jesus said, no, I've got other places. I've got to go. Get the stuff and let's get moving. <sighs> okay, they get the stuff and they go. And then a little while later, they find out that Jesus' friend Lazarus is sick. And they say, Lord, we've got to go. And he says, no, let's stay. And they're like, ah. Oh. And it just didn't seem to matter. Whatever it was that, that they thought, Jesus was on a different agenda. There was something else that was going on. Even when they thought they had the perfect answer to situations, Jesus somehow would let them know that they were misguided in what they thought. Lord, these people are, are, are casting out demons and they're not doing anything. Should we call down fire from heaven? Jesus like, what? You guys don't have a clue. And this was what it was like for three and a half years. Then it came to a head. And you could sense that there was like this, this underlying frustration in the middle of all the excitement and activity and action that was going on. And it happened right before Jesus would go to the cross. It was on the last night that he would be with them, the 12. And, and he, he began a dialogue with them, a conversation with them. And, and finally, it bubbled over. The frustration came out. It was John chapter 14. It's a very famous passage, and Jesus began to speak to his disciples. Let me read it to you, and he said this. He said, let not your heart be troubled because you believe in God, believe also in me. For in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go, and those were the beginning of the trigger words, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Now, they're, they're with them. They're tracking with them. But now, verse 4, it says, and where I go, you know. And the way you know. You know where I'm going, and you guys know how to get there. Okay, now this is the part where it, it kind of happens. Because Thomas who kind of has a bad reputation. You guys know him as what? Doubting Thomas. He's actually courageous Thomas in this moment because Thomas is about to say something that everyone is thinking, but no one has the courage to say. And so he finally says, no, that's it. Verse five, Thomas said unto him, Lord, we know not where you're going and how can we know the way? All right, this is ridiculous what you're saying to us here. We don't know what you're doing in this whole thing. And we have finally given up trying to figure you out. What do we do when you go? You say we know the way, but you're going to go. When I walk into a church, what do I do? Do I say something controversial? Do I look for the person who's the most downtrodden and, and show compassion? Or do I flip over tables? because I haven't been able to get that one down. I've seen you do all three, but I've never known which one we're walking into in the moment that we are. And now, Jesus, what you're saying to us is that you're gonna do it by yourself. And looking around the room right here, none of us are ready for that. What do you mean you're going away? How, and this is the question Thomas is asking, do we follow an example that is so incredibly unpredictable? And how do we follow a path that's so invisible? And that is the issue. Because Jesus was not saying, you're no longer going to follow me. He was saying, now you're going to follow me, but you can no longer see me. It exponentially complicates the process especially when you add what God has already said about what it means to follow him. Psalm 77, verse 19, where it says that his pathways are in the waters, in the great deeps, and his footsteps are not known. You ever try to follow a trail underwater? Let me tell you something. It's harder than following a trail at night because in the water, you can't see. The water's always moving the trail, the path. And God's saying, that's the way my pathways are. And not only that, but you can't see my footsteps, which means that this is an, an insanely complicated thing, what they're asking. Now, Jesus seemed to always know what to do. He was like Rocky. He just looked, well, let me see. Rocky was like Jesus. Let's get the order of, of authority right. You know, where, where Jesus would just look up and he would just know what to do. 
But the disciples, the followers, felt extremely incompetent of what it meant to follow Jesus without him physically there. Has anybody else here ever felt like that? I'm called to follow, but I can't see the path. His footsteps aren't known, and I feel like I'm not able to do what's being asked of me. Well, Jesus sensed their frustration in that moment. And so Jesus let them in on a little bit of how this works. He said, again, John 14, verse 9, Jesus said unto him, he said, have I been so long a time with you and you have not known me, Philip? He that has seen me has seen the Father, and how do you say then show us the Father? He says, believest thou not that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwells in me, he does the work. In other words, Jesus says, listen, what you have witnessed and seen in me for these past three and a half years has not just been me being unpredictable and hard to understand, but I have been led by the will of an invisible father that I could not physically see with my eyes or follow footsteps that were there. I was following him as you were following me. Jesus had already said back in John chapter 5, verse 30, and then again in John 8, 28, that he could do nothing by himself, that he only did those things that the Father gave him to do and empowered him to do. Meaning that Jesus was following as they followed. Then Jesus followed it up. He says, listen, what you've heard of me, what you've seen in me has been me following the Father. But now I'm going to give you a promise to his disciples. He said, it's John chapter 14, verse 16. And listen to what Jesus promises his disciples in light of the fact that he's going to be leaving them. He said that I will pray to the Father and he will give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it sees him not, neither knows him, but you know him, here's how, because he dwells with you and he shall be in you. In other words, there is coming a moment when something of God is going to get inside of you that you have not known previously. And in that moment, things are going to change. He says concerning this again in verse 26 of the same chapter, he says, but the comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said to you. Now, do you, do you see that there? He says that he will teach you and bring things to your remembrance, which means that the voice, the, the prompting is going to come from within you. It's not a footstep that you see with your eyes on the ground in front of you. It's not a voice that you hear audibly externally that tells you what to do. It's not a vision or a figure or something that you lay your eyes on and follow physically, but rather it's something that gets in you and it works through the pathways of your own mind. I will bring to your remembrance all things whatsoever I have said to you, and lead you in that way. Then he says concerning the same thing in the same conversation in John chapter 16, verse 13. He says, how be it when he, the spirit of truth is come, he will guide you into all truth. Now that goes beyond the realm of speech and into the realm of movement. Because if you're being led, you're being guided then you are going somewhere, which means that there is a leading. There's something to follow. He will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will receive of mine, and he will show it unto you. Okay, so here is the promise that Jesus is making as he drops this bomb on them that they are now going to do this by themselves. He is essentially saying that what you have seen in me, you will be without me. That when I depart to the Father, you will have the leading of God 
in the same way that I have had the leading of my father, and you will be able to follow even though you cannot see. Okay? Now, Jesus had already said early on in his ministry to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, he said that you have seen the wind, you see how it blows, and you see what it does. You can't see it, but you can see what it does. And he says it's just like that with people that are filled with his spirit. <laughs> All right? In other words, it's not going to make sense to the outside observer, but ultimately, Jesus would say in John chapter 10, verse 10, that his purpose in all of this, the reason for all of this, is that we might live an abundant life. Meaning that it isn't to frustrate us. It isn't to see if we can do it. But that he wants to be in us. He wants to lead us. He wants to speak to us so that we can lead an abundant life. That's what he wants. So here's what happens when we put it together. This is the way of Jesus. This is what it means to follow Jesus. It's to live in connection with him to continually follow, to move in his will, listen, here's the key words, in real time, right now. Not something in the past or the future, but to be following him present tense right now. And for you and I to enter into that life, it's a powerful life, it's an inspirational life, it's an effective life, it's an abundant life, it's often an unpredictable life, but it's an abundant life. But for the observer, the person who's watching what we do and how we tick and what makes us move, it's unconventional, it's unpredictable, and often it's misunderstood, just like it was for the disciples when they were following Jesus, okay? Now you say, okay, well, that's fine. Those were the 12. So they actually had the model because they were following Jesus physically, and then he left and they had the Holy Spirit. So they had an edge on what we have. What about someone who never followed Jesus physically, but yet we are recipients of the call to follow him, and we have the promise of his spirit to lead us and guide us? What does it look like for someone after to follow Jesus? And thus we come to Acts chapter 16, and we see Paul beginning now his second missionary journey, and we have a prime example of what it looks like for a person to be following Jesus in real time. What does it look like when someone follows Jesus in real time? Now, just as a, a um, kind of a pickup into uh, chapter 16, you'll recall that the idea or the inspiring thought that started this mission trip that Paul is about to go on was a desire to go back and to visit the churches that he had previously planted. He had said to Barnabas, hey, let's go back through and let's check in on all the churches that we planted and see how they're doing. Then they get in a big fight about something. They split up and Paul grabs Silas instead of Barnabas and they head off up into Asia Minor. And for one verse, one verse, it's the last verse of chapter 15. It says that he went through Syria and Cilicia confirming the churches. In other words, his original mission was accomplished in one verse. He didn't spend very much time at all doing what he originally had set forth to do. He did that real quick, and then it was time to do new things. And that's one of the things that I love about Paul, is that Paul was very much a futurist. He was not someone who was kind of stuck in a moment or even looking back at what already had been. He would check in but he would not dwell on the things that happened in the past. He was always pressing forward. That was his way, okay? I think one of the, one of the big hindrances for a Christian of following Jesus in real time, of what, what it means to just follow him right now, is having an overemphasis and an over, uh, overwhelming perspective of things in the past, or of trying to hold on too tightly to something that was, or to preserve something that was, rather than to let go in order to let God do what he wants to do today or even right now. It's very natural for us to do that because hindsight is what? That's right, we see the past very clearly. 
right? So as things happen and we can look back in the rearview mirror, it's easy for us to see God in that, all right? So we grab a hold of something that was, and we recognize that the present, where we are right now, is extremely low resolution, right? We can see a little bit, but we can't see very far. We kind of know what's going to happen maybe the rest of today and into tomorrow, and maybe we can project out a week or so, but our, our, our vision of, of the present is kind of fuzzy. We can't see it super clear, and the future is outright scary. I mean, we're just completely blind. We have no idea what's going to come in the future, but we're very comfortable with the past because we can see it clearly. It makes sense to us. There's context of it, okay? But here's what happens is that we forget that when the past was the present, it was fuzzy. And we didn't see it until it was past. And now we're trying to relive what we can't repeat in a present we can't clearly see to create a future that won't conform to what was. And thus most of us spend our lives feeling lost most of the time because we just can't see clearly, okay? So here's what Paul learned. I'm gonna forget the past and I'm going to press forward into what is and what's to come. He actually wrote those words to the church in Philippi, the church of, of Philippians. He said, I forget the things that are behind, and I press forward towards the high call of God. And part of following Jesus in real time is having an ability to let go of what was and to move forward into what is and what is to come. Now, we get into chapter 16, and it tells us in verse 1 that he came to Derby and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain woman, which was a Jewess and believed, but his father was a Greek, which was well reported of by the brothers that were at Lystra and Iconium. And him would Paul have to go forth with him. And let's pause right there for just a minute. And so Paul comes into this region and he finds this young disciple, this young believer in Jesus, whose name was Timothy. We don't know how old he was, but most likely probably uh, just a, a teenager in his late teenage years. He has the fire of God in him. He has some uh, ability and competence as it's perceived by Paul. Paul sees that there's a calling on this young man's life. And so he's got a good reputation. And Paul sees in him someone that would be useful in the work of God. And so he calls him. We're told concerning Timothy that his mother was a saved Jew. She was a, a believer, but she was of the stock of Israel, but that his dad was an unsaved Greek. We also are about to find out that Timothy was uncircumcised, meaning that being in that family environment, he was not exposed to the traditions of Judaism. However, we learn later that he had been exposed to the scriptures, hyper exposed to the scriptures both from his mother and also, we learn, from his grandmother. And so he didn't have the traditions, the trappings, but he had the word, and then he heard the gospel, and the word sprung forth, and he became a follower of Jesus, being a Jew by uh, birth, yet being uncircumcised. Okay. Now, what we can surmise from all of this is that the family dynamics for Timothy growing up were probably pretty complicated and pretty tense. If you've ever lived in a home where one half of a marriage is saved and the other half of the marriage is unsaved, then you understand that that can make for some tension. Because when there's different ideals and different compasses driving two different wills and lives, two different operating systems trying to be compatible and move in a certain direction, things can be a little bit tense. And you can think it was probably very uncomfortable, and it probably was. However, it was also a prime environment for Timothy's future because it brought him perfectly to the place where he was able to absorb the scriptures without being turned off by the hypocrisy of the traditions. And so though it was tense for Timothy's parents, it was a prime way for God to prepare Timothy for the future and the calling that was there for him. Now listen, if you are in a marriage where one of you is saved and the other one is not, that can be an extremely uncomfortable situation and it can be extremely difficult 
But understand, Christian half of that marriage, that you have an incredible stewardship and an incredible responsibility. Because the way you interact and treat and live alongside of an unbelieving spouse will have a direct effect on what happens to your offspring and also to your unsaved spouse. And being in the church for 20 years, I have seen this scenario over and over again, and I've seen some people do it extremely well, and I've seen some people make a train wreck out of it. And I'm not going to go any further than that, but to say this, is that the way you treat your husband or your wife, if they are unsaved, is of the utmost importance, not for you, but for the future. Because it may go really well for you, but in the process, you can destroy future generations and do things that will keep people from ever coming to know Jesus Christ. Well, Paul finds Timothy, and then he does something that makes no sense at all. Okay, remember, following Jesus <laughs> doesn't, doesn't always make sense. He's about to do something that makes no sense at all. Notice what happens in verse 3. It says, him would Paul have to go forth with him, and so he took and circumcised him because of the Jews which were in those quarters, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now, I know you think, well, that's not really a big deal, and I just read that, and I can go on to the next verse, and it doesn't mean much. Did you guys read chapter 15? Do you, do you guys remember what just happened? You remember back at, just this is not long ago. This is like a couple of months ago. Some people came, some Jews came, and they said, hey, you New Testament believers, you got to be circumcised. And Paul said, no, we don't. And Paul almost got in a fist fight. I, I know I'm adding drama that maybe wasn't there, but, but he almost got in a, a fist fight with these people contending arguing, disputing with them that circumcision was not prerequisite for a believer in the New Testament. So great was the argument that they went to Jerusalem to confer with the apostles, who after having their own argument and, and session of back and forths, made the decree that circumcision was not necessary for a New Testament believer. And Paul had the signed, sealed letters in his hand, which it is now his mission to go to these churches and share with them that we don't have to be circumcised anymore. And then all of a sudden, Paul says to Timothy, he says, hey, Timothy, there's a lot of Jews in this region. We're going to circumcise you. And it's like this big record scratch. You're like, what in the world is this? This is like crazy. This, this doesn't make sense. It's unpredictable. Why are we circumcising Timothy in the middle of this. Furthermore, I want you to listen to what Paul would say later on concerning this idea of Timothy being circumcised. He says in, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, he says, stand fast. That means stand your ground in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free and don't be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Behold, I, Paul, say unto you that if you be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. And Christ has become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, for you are fallen from grace. So Paul's own doctrine that he recorded in Scripture was that circumcision not only isn't necessary, but it can actually be the trigger that leads you down a road of works that disqualifies you from salvation. And yet he says to Timothy, we are going to circumcise you here in this moment. And, and, and contrary to my conflict that I just had, the conviction that I have. And then he, do, he does it in verse 4. Notice what happens in verse 4. It says that as they went through the cities, they delivered them the decrees to keep that were ordained of the apostles and elders which were at Jerusalem. Now, doesn't that seem a little inconsistent? I mean, he's going around saying, you don't need to be circumcised. We just circumcised him but you don't need to be circumcised. You say, what gives here? Why is it? Understand this. Paul's asking of Timothy to be circumcised, very uncomfortable, very unconventional, very unnecessary, was not motivated by what was right or wrong or by what was true or what was by error. Paul's motivation to ask Timothy to be circumcised 
was out of love for people who don't know freedom in Jesus. That was the motivation behind Paul's request of Timothy. He was not trying in his mission to win people to his side of a conviction or an argument or an issue. But he knew that if that became an issue, if circumcision became the topic of conversation amongst those who knew Timothy was the offspring of a Jew and was not circumcised, he knew that that issue would overshadow those Jews' need to be fully alive in Jesus. And what Paul knew by the Spirit inside of him that Jesus had given him is that if certain things were not in place outwardly, even though they were unnecessary, even though they were contrary to Paul's convictions, even though it, it, was, it was a hot issue, if certain things were not in place, there was no chance that those Jewish believers would listen to the message of hope and life in Jesus that Paul was there to bring. Paul would say this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19. He would say, For though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant to all that I might gain the more. Unto the Jews I became as a Jew that I might gain the Jews. To them that are under the law as under the law that I might gain them that are under the law. Paul says that my motivation for doing the things that I did that were unnecessary were for the sake of reaching and having an audience with people that otherwise wouldn't give me the time of day if those things were not in place. That was the issue. But he goes on a little bit further, and this is why it matters. Because he says in verse 21 of 1 Corinthians 9, he says, to them that are without law as without law. I became as without law, being not without law to God, but under the law to Christ. Why? That I might gain them that are without the law. Okay. So in other words, Paul says, if I was going to be speaking to Jews, then I did everything in my potential to remove the barriers that would keep them from hearing what I had to say. But when I was around Gentiles, when I was around lawless people, I also removed every barrier that would keep them from listening to what I had to say. 25 years ago, it's so weird that I can say that because I'm not speaking of a time before me, you know. But 25 years ago, it was about a 1 in 500 ratio of, of people, probably I would say in the United States of America, because that's where I live and that's my, my understanding. It was about one in 500 people that identified as part of the LGBTQ community. About one in 500. And, and back then, it was extremely easy to marginalize and kind of ignore those people because they were relatively a very small segment of the population, at least outwardly. Maybe the number was higher uh, in, in, in secret, but outwardly, that was the number, okay? We don't live there anymore. Fast forward to 2022, and a poll was actually taken last month, and they concluded that 7.1% of the United States population identifies with the LGBTQ, and there's probably some other letters because uh, that keeps getting longer, you know, uh, in that community. Now, what that means is that that number translates just by percentages to 22 and a half million people in the United States of America that identify with that particular group. Now, are we willing as the people that are called to represent Jesus and be his witness to a lost and fallen humanity, are we willing to marginalize and ignore and label 22 and a half million people as unreachable, untouchable, and of no value or concern to God? Are we willing to do that? Are we willing, as the church of Jesus Christ, to change our language and change our perspective in such a way that we can remove barriers in a way where we can bring to people what we ourselves have received? Or is that too much to ask of us? Jesus 
If you look at his life, he should never have engaged a Samaritan woman at a well, especially the type of woman that she was. Jesus should never have been friends with Mary Magdalene, everyone knowing the type of woman that she was. Jesus should never have touched a leprous man. He never should have showed kindness or given acceptance to Zacchaeus. And he absolutely should never have encountered you or me in the place where he found us, where we were. Did it ever occur to you that Jesus did not care what his associations did to his reputation? It almost seemed that he would go out of his way to associate people that would cause his reputation to come down and cause people to murmur about the way that he was. You know what's ironic? Is that the absolute worst person that Jesus associated with in his three and a half years on earth, the worst person that he, that he, that he uh, um, was with was the person that sat next to him, an educated, orthodox, right-wing, white capitalist named Judas. He was the worst one of them all, and yet he was not suspect at all. Here's the truth. This is hard to hear and hard to say. But if you lean hard left or hard right, and those positions are guided by your faith, that means in a 50-50 nation, because that's what we are, you may be willing to leave 50% of the population unreached or in your mind disqualified from being loved by God. If we don't learn to change our language then many people are going to go unreached. And here's the fact of the matter, is that you cannot bring back the days before this happened. We must adapt to what is true today. And the church is calibrated right now. The uppercase C church is calibrated for a time that no longer exists. And if you are a truly spirit-led, spirit-filled person, it should be hard for someone to tell your position or your side. Because the church, you and I, are called to be on the side of humanity, not the side of an issue or a political position or an ideal. That's what Paul meant when he said to Timothy that no man that wars concerns himself with the affairs of this life. It is true that there are people in those communities and that hold certain positions that are absolutely against God and against the church. But it is our mission it is our calling to let them know that God and the church are not against them. And we cannot build walls where God wants us to build bridges. How do we get the message to people that start out thinking that we hate them? We need the Spirit to change our perspective and our mind. Listen, all this to say is that the follower of Jesus, the person who is following him, in the way that he desires, is a servant of humanity, not the servant of a cause. And if we serve a system, a creed, a denomination, it's not the way of Jesus. Paul would circumcise Timothy, even though it was against his position, because he knew he needed to in order to reach the people around him. Watch the result of it in verse 5. It says, And so were the churches established in the faith, and they increased in number daily. It worked. Because of Paul's position, people got saved, okay? The spirit-filled person, the spirit-led person, the follower of Jesus is a servant of humanity. But there's more. The follower of Jesus also plans in pencil. Watch verse 6. It says, Now when they had gone throughout Phrygia and the region of Galatia and were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia, after they were come to Mycenae, they essayed to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit suffered them not. Now, those are puzzling verses, aren't they? I, I have um, tons of calendars. I, I've kept a calendar. I'm not super organized, but I do have to keep a calendar. And I have calendars that go back, um, you know, many years. And uh, when you look at my calendars, they're funny because they're two-thirds scribble and they're one-third words. And the reason is because I do everything in pen, or at least I did up to a certain point. And so I would make plans in pen, and then I would have to scribble them out, because you can't erase pen, and I'd, have to, I'd make new plans. And I'd scribble those out, and I would make new plans. And the one that's still there, that's what I actually did that day, is what's there uh, in, in pen. And uh, you can't do that if you want to be a follower of Jesus, <laughs> okay? Because he turns on a dime, and, and he takes our plans, and he says, that's not what we're going to do. We're going to go a different way. 
And so I can imagine, here's Paul, and he's in Galatia, he's got Timothy, he's got Silas, he's like, we've got to move, it's time to go. And he's, where should we go? And he says, the biggest continent on the planet is Asia, and I want to make the biggest impact and fingerprint on humanity as I can with my life, let's go into Asia. And we're simply told that the Holy Spirit said no, that they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit of preaching the word in Asia. And, and this makes me extremely curious because I say, well, how did the Holy Spirit forbid them from preaching in Asia? And we're not told. So we don't know. But here's what we do know. We know that Paul was not different than us. We know that he did not have a super special set of gifts or access to God that we don't. He didn't have more potential, okay? Why doesn't he say how the Holy Spirit told him no? The answer is because if he did, we would form a standard around it and we would make it a check mark in everything that we do. Well, did the Holy Spirit say do it this way? And God says, no, I don't want to do that. I want to leave it wide open as to my means and ways of giving people my leading. I want to give them the burden of learning to hear in real time. It is our responsibility to keep moving. It is the Spirit's responsibility to lead and to guide. And it's our responsibility then to be learning and growing to follow his promptings and his leadings. He said no. Now, the deeper any relationship gets, it could be physical or it could be with the divine, the clearer are the nonverbal cues that come. Or early in your marriage, you know what it's like. Your spouse says, this is what you're going to do. Honey, can I? And, and they give us this whole thing. Then you're married a little while and you learn, you get more sensitive. You learn how to interpret the pause, right? <laughs> so, Georgia, can I go to the gym? And there's like this half second. And then she says, yeah. I'm like, Duh. <laughs> I have to ask, what's going on there? And I'm not going to the gym that day. It's a half second pause, but I knew in that half second, that nonverbal cue, she communicated in her silence louder than she could have with her words. But as we've been married even longer now, now it's, it's nonverbal 100%. There's just a sense. There's, there's a communication. There's an understanding. And it's the same thing in the things of God. Early in my walk with God, he was extremely clear with things. One time I was about to make a move that would change my life and change my family's life. It was a big decision and it was ready to go. It was like a day before the decision was to be made. And I got an email from a person in Croatia that I barely knew that said, God just gave me a word of knowledge about you that you're about to do something that's going to hinder and harm your family. Don't do it. And I was like, oh, that's insane what just happened. And it, and, and, and it played out, you know, like we changed our mind. We said, okay, let's wait. And God did things in a completely different way. That was amazing. Okay. But it's not always like that. And, and now there've been times that I sense the spirit saying, no, it's, it's invisible. It, it's, it's not a sign. It's not a word. It's not someone coming to me and saying, God, no, it's just, there's a sense. Don't do that. And then I say, well, I, I want to see. And so I do it. And it's a disaster. And I say, all right, I'm going to learn from that. <laughs> then there's times that there's something in me that says, don't do it. But there's also something in me that says, no, do it. Keep, keep going. And you go. And, you, and it was God. See, you're never going to figure it out by check marks and boxes and waiting for signs it's real time following Jesus. And as we grow in him, we become more sensitive to him. That's what it is. That's what he does. Okay. Now, if you plan in pen, meaning that you make plans and you just do them and you give no regard to what God's will might be in a situation, then you will end up frustrated and you will not have the momentum of the spirits leading in power in your life. Just think about it. Abraham was told by God, I want you to climb the hill and I want you to offer your son. And if Abraham wrote that in pen, we'd have a dead Isaac. What well, God told me and I don't have to listen anymore. I'm just going to go. But just at that moment, God said, no, that's not my way. It's not my will. 
This was a picture. You'll understand it in 2,000 years. But look behind you. There's a ram in the thicket. Take that and offer it instead of your son. So you plan in pencil because God can turn on a dime. Do you know why I don't like planning in pencil? Do you know why I don't like writing in pencil in my calendar? Because pencils are awful to write with. I hate writing with pencil because they get dull and there's this big, shiny, fat line that after three days you can't read anymore because it fades. I hate pencils, okay? If you want a pencil to work, what do you have to do? You have to sharpen it. If you want to walk with Jesus, then you must constantly sharpen the sensitivity of hearing his voice. That means multiple times in a day, stopping and centering and taking a moment and and checking in with God and saying, Lord, refine me, move me, lead me. Is this still the way that you want me to go? Is this still what you want me to do? The follower of Jesus plans in pencil. The follower, oh, geez, we're out of time. How does that happen? It's because I talk too much. It's the inner dialogue. Let's pause. Worship team, you can come. I will be merciful to you and not make you sit longer. But let's pause and let's pick this up next time and let's talk about the follower of Jesus embraces an unscripted reality. And you can read ahead in verse 12 through 15 and you can uh, see, see what happens next. But the desire of God is that we be following him in real time. That's his will. That's his plan. That's what he wants for us. And, uh, and it's the way that we'll make it the most. So we'll pause right there. Let's pray. Uh, let's close the service. And then we'll pick it up next time right where we left off. Father, we uh, thank you tonight for, for the things that, that we've seen thus far in this chapter. And we do ask you, Lord, that we, even in this moment, Lord, would hear your call to follow you completely and wholeheartedly. Lord, that we would learn to not lean on our own understanding, that we would learn to not... Uh, fake it and, and put on a, a, an air of religion and to show as though that, that we're something that we're not. But Jesus, we want to believe you and trust you for your promise that you said that your spirit would be in us and that you would teach us to follow you and walk with you. So Lord, would you empower that in us right now, that desire? And would you help us, Lord, that we might fully know the abundant life of living in your plan and in your will for us? So God, help us, Lord. Speak to us. Keep us in the center of that. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback. So if you would, leave us a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.